Uh, fighting continues between Israel and Hamas. Uh, there does seem to be some building international pressure on Israel to pull back. Of course, it was a vote last week that uh, Canada sided with, a resolution at the UN calling for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, even apparently the Americans putting some pressure on Israel to start to switch to a different phase here. Uh, to be more targeted and going after now Hamas leadership and Hamas infrastructure. Uh, but uh, going into Gaza, this kind of urban warfare has been tremendously impactful on the civilian population. I think doubly so because you have an entity in Hamas that uses that or tries to use that to its advantage. That Hamas inflicts Israeli casualties because they see that as benefiting them. Uh, and I think coldly they, they see that Palestinian casualties benefit them. So we see Hamas uh, fighters not wearing uniforms, entrenching themselves in civilian populations, using schools and hospitals as bases, firing rockets from civilian populations, all of which, of course, uh, put civilians in harm's way. So there's no doubt that there's been civilian casualties as a result of this conflict. So where does international law come into play? There have been accusations leveled at Israel uh, that they violated international law. And those who make that point will, will note these civilian casualties. But that's not how those things are determined. So how does international law really actually apply here? There was an interesting piece the other day. You can find it at nationalpost.com. It's also up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca exploring some of these issues. Uh, joining us on the lines the co-author of that piece, Sarah Teach is a senior fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute, a legal advisor to Secure Canada, and is an international human rights lawyer. Uh, Sarah, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so the point about international law and civilian casualties, uh, how are the two linked? It's a great question, and what we've seen, especially, you know, as this war has, is going on, is a sort of broad misunderstanding and a conflation of these two types of international law, uh, just ad bellum and just in bello. And there seems to be a misunderstanding that even if it's a just war with necessary and proportionate objectives that's conducted in compliance with the laws of conflict, that if the civilian casualties get too high, um, the war needs to stop, and it's, it's, not, it's obligated on a states to engage in a, a ceasefire agreement, and that's simply not the case. Right. So what does it actually mean? So there's these two types of laws at play, right? Just ad bellum and just in bellow. And just ad bellum um, talks about when you can use force in the first place. In other, wo in other words, when a war can be initiated. And that has to relate to uh, whether the military objectives are necessary and proportionate. So in this case, with Israel and Hamas, we all know about the massacre on October 7th. Hamas is continuing to refuse to release hostages. They continue to fire rockets at Israel every single day. So it's pretty clear to, to me and to most lawyers, in fact, that this, the initiation of this war was, uh, was just, that these were necessary and proportionate objectives to uh, make Israel a safe place uh, to live and to get the hostages back. Right. Then we have just in bellow, and that's uh, otherwise known as the laws of armed conflict. And that relates, uh, that really looks at specifically like each attack and whether they are in compliance with the laws of armed conflict. And under that uh, heading, you have things like, you know, you can't, uh, you know, target, you can't deliberately target civilians or civilian targets. It also, there's a proportionality rule at play where if there's expected to be incidental loss of civilian life, that injury to civilians or civilian objects has to be, uh, cannot be, uh, sorry, excessive in relation to 
the direct and concrete military advantage that's anticipated from the attack. Uh, but that doesn't relate to the justness of the overall war. So that's sort of the two families of laws at play. Right. So so some things are being conflated here then when it comes to, you know, the, the justification for war, the, the laws of armed conflict. Uh, as it pertains to what's happening in Gaza. So if Israel has the legitimate right to to engage in armed conflict, and, and that's where the enemy is, uh, so that part of it is established. So in order to target the enemy, in order to target Hamas fighters, what is Israel obligated to do when this fighting is, is in urban areas? Right, I mean, it's a great question, and it's, it's obviously complicated by the fact that Hamas does embed itself in civilian in civilian areas, which you've said, and, and there's, you know, certainly the evidence to back this up. There's, I remember reading, like, an old NATO report talking about Hamas's use of human shields. This is sort of a well-known fact going back several years. Right. That being said, Israel does have an obligation to, to minimize uh, civilian casualties to ensure, as I said, that any attack doesn't have an excessive uh, incidental cost to civilian life. Um, the difficulty with, you know, some of these sort of armchair, um, you know, activists and lawyers uh, claiming that there's been a breach, it's very, very hard to actually analyze breaches of, of the laws around conflict when you're not in that zone. And I say that also not as someone not in that zone, right? But you have to, because it's about if the, if the injury is excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage that's anticipated from the attack. So... You, how can you know from the outside what that is, right? You'd have to put yourself in the shoes of the military commanders in Israel with all the classified information that they have that we don't. Well, let's take an airstrike, for example. I mean, an airstrike is 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 uh, a, a certainly powerful, and you know, an airstrike in an urban area. I think there's a reasonable expectation that it could have some some collateral damage. So, how would an assessment be made then uh, under the guidelines of international law about uh, an airstrike on, on say, you know, if, uh, uh, Hamas leadership happened to be in a building, or it's you know, it's a Hamas Hamas co- command center? How about that side of it? Yeah, another great question. I mean, there are, there are teams of lawyers in each country. In the U.S., they're called JAG lawyers. In Canada, we also have military lawyers to, to look at this question. And it's really, as, as I said, it's all about the military advantage that's anticipated. So it would really turn on the details. And, you know, the devil's always in the details with these kinds of analysis. So if you're looking at a building, you want you probably want to look at, you know, how many Hamas terrorists are in the building? Uh, what's the likelihood of eliminating that? How many civilians are in the building? Is there a way that they can be, you know, enticed to leave? And Israel is, is quite famous for this knocking method. And I think a lot of democratic countries do this as well, where before they drop the bomb, they drop like a, something that just makes a knock to show that they're really serious and please leave if you're a civilian. Right. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, detailed analyses that go into that and also, uh, you know, concrete things that uh, rights-respecting military can do to try to minimize, uh, you know, damage to civilians. Right. And I mean, is there a double standard when it comes to those that are, are scrutinizing every Israeli decision here in, in how they're they're carrying out this uh, response to Hamas, uh, but where we have, you know, the attacks of October 7th themselves or the hostage taking or, you know, indiscriminate firing of rockets into civilian areas. We have pretty clear evidence uh, of war crimes on the other side. Yes, indeed. And in fact, it's an interesting phenomenon that I see in, in multiple files. I mean, you see this with China and Uyghurs and Falun Gong practitioners as well, where oftentimes perpetrators of atrocity crimes try to flip the narrative and make it seem like the victims are 
the perpetrators and the perpetrators are the victims, it's really interesting. And you really have to dig deep into the facts of each case to sort of tease out the truth. But, you know, even looking at, you know, the, the allegation of genocide, right? There's, you know, all sorts of allegations that Israel's committing genocide. But if you actually look at the law of genocide and you look at what Hamas did on October 7th, it's, there's, a, in my mind, a much stronger case that Hamas is a genocidal actor that, you know, attempted to engage in genocide or, or maybe did on a small scale on October 7th when you have the, the crimes that they committed paired with their very clear intent to destroy that was, that was communicated before, during, and since. Right. And I mean, you know, there's the other question, I guess, of what this all means. Like, this can't just be a, an academic exercise. Uh, you know, if, if, if someone is, is guilty of war crimes, what's the, the mechanism? How do we hold entities accountable for that? It depends on, on the specifics of the case. I mean, the International Criminal Court does exist to prosecute atrocity crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Of course, it's limited jurisdictionally by who's a state party and who's not. That's challenging. There's also all sorts of um, uh, UN bodies that are charged with looking at uh, violations. Though the UN has proven itself rather biased in this case, there's the International Court of Justice, and then there's universal jurisdiction. So Canada, as well as many other countries around the world, is typically actually they're empowered to prosecute perpetrators of these atrocities um, if they find themselves on Canadian soil. And in some jurisdictions. They can actually begin that process with a perpetrator in absentia. So I have another case we're looking at doing a, um, a case in Argentina where universal jurisdiction laws are a bit more lax and they can actually start an investigation before anyone is even there to, to arrest. So there's all sorts of options, but it, it really is very fact-dependent as well. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, Sarah. Much more, as mentioned, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this.